Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Page Turners Podcast. I am your host, Elgin Bailey. This is the beginning of season five. Ladies and gentlemen, this is season five, episode number one. As you should be aware, and if you are not aware of by now, each episode or each season, rather, of the Page Turners podcast, I pick a particular book, a particular text, and I walk through that particular text page by page, line by line, and in the midst, providing my commentary and my thoughts on the particular topic or the particular, yeah, the particular topic or subject within the book. And each season, each book, I tend to, excuse me, I tend to choose a book that is um, relevant for one, uh, but also is actually going to be equipping those who listen to the podcast with the information and tools to combat many of the things that are taking place right now, right? So, for instance, I did um, Dr. James Cone, um, Black Power and Black Theology. That was season one. I chose that book specifically because currently within Christendom, there has been a ongoing battle between um, the black church, black culture, the black church and black Christians place within the overall context, the overall mechanism, the overall institution of Christianity, right? So Dr. James Cone drops these wonderful texts And I chose Black Theology and Black Power because I felt like it would be instrumental and a tool to fight against the type of oppression that black folks are dealing with within the context of the institution of Westernized Christianity. This past book, season four, I chose the myth and propaganda of black buying power for one, to educate the listeners uh, on the plight, uh, right? The plight of uh, black folks in America specifically, but not exclusively. I'm talking to black African folks across the diaspora, particularly black folks in America dealing with the racial wealth divide and the conversations around reparations and black entrepreneurship and all these conversations that are taking place around that and in the midst of all those conversations you have an influx and uptake right in support black businesses black entrepreneurs all of these different types of things and along with that there's this huge class divide within black America so When it comes to talking about black people who live in poverty or poverty stricken or poor, many will say things like, if you just worked harder, 
if you went to school, if you had financial literacy, if you had all these things. And what Dr. Ball's text did was eradicate this myth that black people have one point trillion dollars in <laughs> not trillion, but one point two billion dollars in buying power, which many erroneously translate into black people having one point blah 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 amount of money, which allows us which should allow us to be out of the situations that we're in. Uh and not giving us, you know, not looking at the full picture. Uh, and that's what Dr. Ball's book did. So I chose Dr. Ball's book intentionally to equip the listeners with the accurate information to be able to address those type of comments, those types of uh, discussions, those types of issues, those types of just absolute false hoods and just frankly just the bullshit that people are spitting out when it comes to addressing the racial wealth divide poverty redistribution of wealth all these topics are typically and in many instances the argument is a bootstrapping ideology thrown at black folks ultimately blaming us for being in the position that we're in so there's a method right behind why i chose why i choose these books there's a there's a reason why i choose these joints that there's a, a purpose behind sharing this information because it's not just me hopping on this podcast and giving out information right it's not just me picking a book and reading a book it's a form of political education. It's a opportunity for people to study, be equipped so they can fight. Hence the motto, study and fight. Because, and I'm still in this again from Dr. Paul, uh, who I believe borrowed it from someone else. One of the things he said that he is moving away from and wants people to move away from is the idea of reading a bunch of books. Like just reading a bunch of books and moving towards studying books. And there's a distinct difference. Studying, I'm wrestling with the text. I'm taking notes. I'm highlighting. I'm looking at the footnotes. And thank God for authors who actually do footnotes. But it's that type of thing that compares to reading books. I'm reading a number of books, but I'm only studying a couple and to season five's book, I'm studying it. I've been studying this topic for some time. It's been one that I've grappled with, that I've wrestled with for some time. And I've read this text and this text to me was eye-opening, revolutionary, challenging, but needed. Season five is going to be is the revolution will not be funded beyond the nonprofit industrial complex. Beyond the nonprofit industrial complex. Now I can give you, you know, some ideas of what the nonprofit industrial complex means. I can 
give you some ideas. But one of the things I will say throughout this season is if you work for a non, this should be a book that you should read. If you are engaged in <laughs> nonprofit work, this should be a text that you should read. You should be reading this text. It is incredibly helpful. It is incredibly needed. It's essential to where we are. It's essential to what we're doing. It is crucial to our journey. This text is crucial to what is taking place. It's crucial to the direction that we're headed. It's crucial to so many different things that are taking place right now, man. Uh, and I don't want to give too much of it away, but what I will say is this, right? Nonprofits in and of itself are not bad things. They're not bad. But we're going to study the origins. We're going to study um, the intent behind them and how even though they do serve somewhat of a benefit to things, yeah, they're not as good as we tend to think. And again, I, I, I want to be clear, without sharing too much, I'm going to dig in. Ladies and gentlemen, this is The Revolution Will Not Be Funded Beyond the Nonprofit Industrial Complex. I'm going to start by reading the foreword. And before I do that, I just want to be clear that the, this book is a collection of essays. Okay, it's a collection of essays. And let's begin with the forward. The forward is written by Sonia Manshi and Craig Wilsons. And I read, in this forward, we revisit the history of the nonprofit industrial complex critique, connecting it to emerging analysis of the academic industrial complex, as well as its historical antecedents and critical interventions into the U.S. military and prison systems. Reflecting on the current context of neoliberalism, we also raise some question about the limits of these critiques to think about what kinds of political responses to justice we most want and need. Beginning with the first Color of Violence conference in 2000 and continuing with subsequent conferences and publications, Insight brought into conversation community organizers and advocates, advocates, Excuse me, activists, service providers, teachers, and scholars. While differently situated, these various groups find their work shaped in powerful and often constraining ways by what was being called the nonprofit industrial complex or NPIC. This term signaled what Insight identified as a system of relationships between the state or local and federal governments, the owning classes, 
foundations, and nonprofit NGO social service and social justice organizations. Okay. So I'm going to read that one more time because I want us to be clear on what the definition of the nonprofit industrial complex is. And it goes further and it unpacks it more. But I just want to highlight this piece right here for you. Okay. The nonprofit industrial complex or NPIC is identified as a system of relationships between the state or local and federal governments, the owning classes, foundations, and nonprofit NGO social service and social justice organizations. Okay? And I continue to read. As a critique of the NPIC spread among academic audiences, its analysis was brought to the university setting, launching a nascent critique of the academic industrial complex, AIC. To think in terms of an AIC was to ask parallel questions about why we have the form of institutionalized education that we do and what the role of universities might be in both maintaining status quos and furthering harms caused by capitalism and heteropatriarchy and white supremacy. The AIC framework brought renewed attention to the role of the academy in directly supporting criminal punishment systems and military industrial complexes. At the same time, if nonprofits have been essential sites for access to life-saving and sustaining resources, universities have remained important locations for generating critical dissent. In recent years, students and teachers have found that space shrinking and more vo- excuse me, I'm going to do that again. In recent years, students and teachers have found that space shrinking and made vulnerable through attacks on critical and ethnic studies programs, centers, faculty members, the elimination of tenure track lines, adjudication of labor, and the cutting of state funds and increased privatization on the backs of students in the form of unbearable debt. The nonprofit and school are two key sites in which neoliberal social and economic reforms are both constituted and contested. Now, that word neoliberal is a word that I know is thrown out often, but I want to be clear that when we use that particular term, it's going to be defined so you won't be left in the dark. A lot of the terms, they do a wonderful job throughout the essay of unpacking and making the words and these topics palatable for anybody to understand. So don't get hung up. Don't feel like you're getting lost if you don't know what neoliberal means. But it's an important definition. It's an important word for us to understand, not only in the context of this book, but as we move forward with this particular, when we think of politics, when we think of the world, and you'll see how it all ties in. And I read, These two realms are not distinct, but are deeply implicated in one another, often in joint projects of producing for neoliberalism, producing knowledge and producing communities. Considering the nonprofit and university together offers an opportunity to rethink the relationships between activism and scholarship, as well as a chance to re-theorize neoliberalism from the bottom up to acts. What are the possibilities for transformative politics 
given the capacity of neoliberal capital to incorporate absorb or neutralize demands for social justice and what can we produce in excess of neoliberalism here we go here's going to be a definition and an understanding and more clarity surrounding the term neoliberalism and i read we understand neoliberalism as the form of capitalism that has dominated transactional transnational Cheese. <laughs> blue, 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 blue. And I read, we understand neoliberalism as the form of capitalism that has dominated transnational economic systems since the early 1970s. Here's the definition. As an ideology, neoliberalism is predicated upon the belief that the maximization of social good requires locating all human action in the domain of the market. Accordingly, neoliberal ideology demands governmental non-interference in a market understood to follow a set of natural laws that direct the market towards its continued expansion. This is most commonly expressed in an anti-big government or any government rhetoric that has become, in the United States at least, the baseline from which debates about any social program begins. Despite constant and vehement calls for less and less state involvement in social and economic life, neoliberalism has in fact elicited persistent and intensive government action on its behalf. When neoliberalism moves from a set of ideas into practice, it requires an active state to direct the dismantling of social welfare programs, the deregulation of labor and trade, and the protection of the wealth and assets of transnational corporations and a global elite class. Neoliberalism was introduced gradually in the United States, beginning with the fiscal reforms of the 1970s. In the early 1980s, neoliberalism started to become visible in its transformations of the social realm. This took place under the administration of Reagan and the beginning of the dismantling of what? The social safety net. And if you think about Reagan, some of the policies and some of the things that he came in with that he immediately tried to end and actually did end, neoliberalism will begin to make some sense to you. And I read, like the reforms of Margaret Thatcher, his counterpart in the United Kingdom, Reagan's reforms relied on violent and oppressive state tactics, such as the mass firing of striking air traffic controllers as a move to crush organized labor, which stood in the way of neoliberalism. The cumulative effects of decades of neoliberal reform have been a massive exasperation of the inequalities of racial capitalism and its gendered divisions of labor. This has resulted in part from the deindustrialization de of the U.S. economy and the outsourcing of production jobs overseas. In a racially stratified labor market, the restructuring of these sectors of employment most affect who? People of color, especially recent immigrants and African Americans. At the same time, 
The rollback of social welfare programs in particular has targeted the 1960s Great Society expansion of access to social welfare programs to formerly excluded populations of color. Women of color have borne the brunt of these reforms as well as of the mechanism of surveillance and punishment that have become joined to public assistance access. And if the effects of neoliberalism have been racial lies and gender, accompanying discourse have both exploited and obscured this fact. Feminist scholars, including Lisa Lowe and Lisa Duggan, have argued that we must account for the ways in which the economic reforms of neoliberalism are mobilized through cultural discourses of race, gender, and sexuality. Such analysis points to how the gendered and racialized effects of neoliberalism have been hidden under a cover story that blames people of color for their own impoverished conditions. The most infamous version of this, perhaps, has been what Patricia Hill Collins labels a controlling image of the welfare queen. The welfare queen narrative drew from a pathologization of black families best represented in the 1965 Monaghan Report, which narrated black families as a parent failures at heteropatriarchal norms. The report posited that this as a source of black poverty. So what they're saying there is the reason based off of the 1916 Monaghan report, the reason that black folks have been in poverty is because of piss poor family structure. And I read, the report posited this as a source of black poverty. The image of a single black mother living in luxury off of welfare payments helped generate white opposition to social welfare programs that, in fact, primarily benefited who? White folks. Thus, neoliberal reforms gained popular support through cultural mobilization of gender, race, and sexuality. Elizabeth Bernstein and Janet Jacobson point out that gender, sexuality, and race have also been mobilized to expand neoliberalism through projects of incorporation. Various feminists, queer, and queer scholars have examined the intertwined economic and gender and social interests that coalesce in corporate campaigns to appropriate seemingly progressive causes such as LGBT rights and the fight against breast cancer or in the neoliberal states appropriation of formerly liberationist discourses of feminist and queerness in fermenting sexual nationalisms, carceral politics, and securitized borders. Jamie Peck and Adam Thickle described the Thatcher-Reagan era as the rollback phase of neoliberalism. By this they mean that in a stage of neoliberal reform, the protections of the social welfare state were actively undone. Of course, this rolling back is not singular or total, but continues in various forms today. Schools and nonprofit organizations continue to be shaped by ongoing cuts to state support for social welfare and education. As noted earlier, as the state has disavowed its responsibility for the health and well-being of its population, nonprofit industries have grown to assume this role providing essential social health services. 
The privatization has not simply entailed in handing over of state monies as nonprofits must compete for public funds, which are made increasingly scarce. At the same time, schools and universities have suffered major withdrawal of public money. This has been one of the greatest rollback successes of neoliberal reform. It has meant the aggressive introduction of private corporate interests and business models into education, seen in everything from corporate-produced curriculum to standardized testing. At primary and secondary levels, this has resulted in the expansion of charter schools. In higher education, this has meant the privatization of universities through corporate sponsorship of programs, centers, and entire schools. Peketiko argue that the rollback phase was followed by a rollout phase in which new programs came to fill the vacuum created by dismantling of social welfare state. Now I want to stop right there just for a moment because I want you, the listener, to kind of think. Think about the nonprofits that you know of, right? Think of the nonprofits that you work, you know of. What is the purpose of that particular nonprofit? What is that nonprofit supposed to do? What is that nonprofit's role in the community in which it serves? Why is that nonprofit there? That nonprofit is there to fill a hole left by who? Do 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 do. The state. Yes. And when I say the state, I mean the government. They're there to fill a role. To fill the vacuum created by the dismantling of the social welfare state. Woo. <laughs> and I read, these new programs primarily have taken the form of social control mechanisms to manage the social unrest and disorder that results from the dismantling of the social safety net in rollback phase. In the United States, this is represented starkly in the massive expansion of systems of policing and imprisonment, mechanism of saw control which are less obviously coercive and directly violent than imprisonment have also been rolled out. So while primary and secondary schools have seen the introduction of militarized policing, including metal detectors and armed police in school buildings, the privatization of education through skyrocketing tuition has reduced a debt burden that acts as a more subtle form of social control. If mass education has always served to socialize students into the labor force, today debt plays a controlling function that limits the already constrained choices of graduates and absorbs what can be politically resistant energies. Let me stop here. And I want to double back because this is so, so, so important. This part right here. These new programs primarily have taken the form of social control mechanisms to manage the social unrest and disorder that results from the dismantling of the social safety net in the rollback phase. These nonprofits, the nonprofit industrial complex, is here primarily the origin story. 
story that we're going to see in later uh, essays, particularly the one coming up in next episode by the great Dylan Rodriguez, who I'm looking to have come on the podcast to talk more about this, is how nonprofits were put in place by Nixon during the height of black civil unrest as a way to quell and to 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 remove the 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 oomph from civil unrest by putting nonprofits in place to listen i i can't wait i i always want to jump into that episode now but i i i gotta hold back i'm telling you this is it's phenomenal okay Woo, <laughs> man, I'm telling you, this book right here, and I read, okay, I, I, I'm telling you, it's just, I, I got it, this this book right here, man, uh, woo, okay, and I read, nonprofits inherited their self-controlled function from the social welfare state. In regulating the poor, and other excellent texts, Francis Fox Piven and Richard Cloward argue that social welfare programs in the United States mitigate tensions produced under capitalism by filling in for lack of access to full employment and supplementing inadequate <laughs> wages and benefits. You hear that? The purpose and point of oh man, I, listen, I, I I gotta get you to understand, man. Listen, I'm I, I, I am fired up. You're right. And I'm going to read it again because I don't want you to miss it. Nonprofits inherited their self-control function from the social welfare state. In regulating the poor, Francis Fox Piven and Richard Cloward argue that social welfare programs in the United States mitigate tensions produced under capitalism by filling in for the lack of access to full employment and supplementing inadequate wages and benefits. Piven and Cloward chart how social programs expand in the United States during periods of unrest, i.e. stimulus checks, baby. What? Oh! During periods of unrest in order to pacify the population and undermine the revolutionary potential of shared experiences of oppression in capitalism. That's why he gave, that's why the stimulus checks were given. That's a large reason why those stimulus checks were given. That's a large reason why. You understand? Come on, man. It is to what pacify the population and undermine the revolutionary potential. Come on. Come on. And I read. The insight volumes help show the ways that the U.S. nonprofit system may perform that role today doing the work of the state and keeping in place the status quo of state-sponsored and supported forms of inequality and disenfranchisement. This work also takes... This work also takes a perhaps more insidious form of producing and managing forms of sexual and racial difference that meet the terms and needs of capitalism in the state. With their funding restrictions and a social service model of targeted constituents, nonprofits may reproduce categories of deserving and undeserving along the lines of legible and illegible identities in the communities on whose behalf the state calls on to speak. 
beyond the industrial complex. The original industrial complex formulation, the military-industrial complex, was brought to the attention by the United States President Dwight Eisenhower in 1961. In a speech towards the end of his presidency, Eisenhower issued a warning of the dangers that a profit motive would bring to war made possible by the newly cemented relationship between the institution of the military and a growing arms industry. Eisenhower cautioned extended to the role of the federal government, anticipating its misuse of power in this alliance between military and the defense industry. He perhaps could not have anticipated how important that warning would prove or the extent to which the U.S. policy would come to be driven by endless money-making opportunities of the war on terror. Naomi Klein has termed the current version of a disaster capitalism complex, which profits not only from war, but from the political, economic, and environmental destruction it wrecks. Disaster capitalism complex. Okay? Disaster capitalism complex. The privatization of U.S.-led rebuilding abroad in the Iraq illustrates this too clearly, as does the role that domestic militarism played in post-Katrina reconstruction efforts. From its attention to war-making in the context of capitalism, the military-industrial complex critique was then extended to the rapidly growing U.S. prison system. The catastrophic economic effects of neoliberal reconstruction in the 1970s, along with government repression of resistance movements and communities of color set conditions for mass criminalization of black, Latino, indigenous people. Since the 1980s, Jesus, since the 1980s, the growth of the prison system has been sustained by the direct investment of private prison corporations. A wide range of industries gained important footholds in the prison marketplace, from food provision to telephone services to militarized correction officer supplies. Angela Davis helped advance this critique of the prison industrial complex, PIC. Critiques of the PIC drew attention to the fact that the same corporations providing services inside sell goods and services to those on the outside, as with telecommunication industries. Furthermore, these critiques highlighted the market in goods produced by barely waged prison labor. The active role of prison private prisons in the expansion of detention facilities after the passage of anti-immigration legislation in 1996 and then again in the post-9-11 period further illuminated the political and economic alliances between corporation and the state. While continuing to be vital formation for scholars and activists, the prison industrial complex critique has sometimes been mistakenly taken up as implicating only private prisons. Those run directly by only corporations private contracts from the state rather than the system of capitalism as a whole. Ruth Wilson Gilmore, the great Ruth Wilson Gilmore, has argued that even thinking in terms of profit motive is not enough. Rather, in her study of the California prison system, Gilmore shows how that what she terms the prison fix takes care of four surplus cries for neoliberal capital, surpluses of government capacity, 
Land, Finance, and Labor. Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Outstanding book, Golden Gulag. Check it out. And I read, the last point is key. As Gilmore demonstrates how prisons serve to take out of circulation unemployed low-wage workers for whom enough of a reserve already exists. In the terms of our above discussion, this is the direct control that accompanies the soft control of nonprofit and education systems during the dismantling of the social safety net. By turning attention to these cries of surplus, Gilmore shows that prison expansion does not only offer a site for profit making, but secures the U.S. economy within globalization, putting the surplus of government capacity, land and finance to work while making redundant the racialized populations no longer needed in labor markets. In this way, prison represent not just another industrial complex, but a container for capitalism itself. When extended to nonprofit organizations in the academy, the industrial complex critique has obviously been incredibly fruitful. Nonetheless, as we further develop and refine the frameworks, we must also consider their limits. In our uses of the industrial complex framework, we must recognize that it cannot explain all that occurs within a nonprofit or educational setting. The logics of the NPIC may structure the work that takes place in any given organization, but it does not fully account for or subsume it. In nonprofits, life-saving resources are redistributed, leadership skills are shared and developed, and people build radical consciousness and communities. Universities similarly offer vital places for deployment of ideas, selves, and communities. Alongside drudgery and conflict, real joy and love live within these complexes, both in spite of and because of their institutional context. Remember I mentioned that. In spite of this critique, nonprofits in and of itself are not evil. Structural critiques, and I read, sorry, structural critiques such as the industrial complex model are important for understanding larger political and economic processes that shape the possibilities for how we live and resist. However, these structures are not monolithic, nor are they fully determining. The NPIC, for example, contains with it many types of nonprofits, including both national and transnational organizations with multi-million dollar budgets and small grassroots funded community based organizations across these scales exists a wide range of kinds of work political commitments and resources it is important that we do not collapse these differences even while recognizing a set of shared structural forces and logics this is especially important as nonprofits themselves are vulnerable to these structural forces for example nonprofit organizations continue to feel impacts of the recession in both the increased demands for basic social services as well as the shrinking of the government and foundation funding and individual donations. Many small organizations made up of poor and working class members have dissolved or folded into larger nonprofits. A lack of funding has led such groups to give up vital infrastructure and compensated staff positions, but the work continues through volunteer labor in members' homes or donated spaces. Similarly, while all higher education institutions are impacted by neoliberal economic reform, this is not experienced identically at all institutions. Differences in funding cuts exist across types of institutions as well as states and regions. 
While paying critical attention to differences within the AIC and the NPIC, we must also be cautious not to mistake the individuals in these settings for institutions themselves. Very important part. Life within the NPIC and AIC requires constant negotiation of how those complexes constrain and enable transformative work. In those negotiations, individuals are not only shaped by their institutional locations, but also push back and shape their organization's university in broader contexts. One way to attend to these dynamics is to consider that most people are positioned within the AIC or the NPIC as workers and as such find themselves caught between their own expectation and the promises and pitfalls of their schools and organizations. Workers in nonprofit organizations, like any workers, navigate the demands and restrictions of their jobs and the conditions of their workplaces. Nonprofit workers are often members of the same communities that their organizations address. And as people of color, women, queer, and trans people, and immigrants are also targeted and made vulnerable by the same systems of exploitation and oppression that they challenge in their work. Woo. To the extent that nonprofit organizations maintain the status quo, these forms of violence, including racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, and ableism, are reproduced internally in these settings. Despite these precarious and exploited conditions, nonprofit workers do more than simply reproduce the logics and further the harms of the nonprofit industrial complex. That priorities and agendas of nonprofit organizations are often set by the workers with political commitments and values that resist the assumption of the nonprofit industrial complex and subvert or manipulate the nonprofit form to serve radical commitments. This can include centering the most vulnerable or marginalized members of the community through internal structures and mobilizing resources to support this work. Nonprofit workers also educate funders and advocate for policy change. Two channels, though, which they shape in broader conditions within which nonprofits do their work. Such work exceeds service provision or programmatic activities, claiming space and resources for radical and transformative projects. Woo! Finally, while bringing nuance and complexity to our understanding of what happens within the nonprofit industrial complex and academic industrial complex, we also must think about the ultimate political aims of these critiques. Critiques of the military and prison industrial complexes have led to the articulation of abolitionist politics. In assessing U.S. military and prison regimes, scholars and activists seek to map their op operations in order to dismantle these two sites of violent oppression. Envisioning a world without war and without cages moves us from critique to building alternative possibilities today. Are we similarly calling for the abolition of nonprofits and universities? Some of us may answer that with a yes. And as with the military and prison, they may be <laughs> irrecurable through reform. But here we want to distinguish between the institutional form and the content and purposes of activities within those settings, such as those outlined above. There's nothing we want to save from the military and prison when they are destroyed. But there may be much we want to save in the nonprofit and university. 
Our, ta our task then is to think about how to nurture these elements to prepare them for their lives outside of their current institutional forms. Ooh, that's a lot in one episode. That's a lot. And ladies and gentlemen, that's just a forward. That's just a forward. That's not even an essay, ladies and gentlemen. That's not even an essay. Do you hear what I'm saying? There was some, like my church folk would say, there was some meat up in that joint. There was some heavy things in there. But I love how in the foreword, they mentioned that they're trying to, you know, make it clear that they're not attacking the they're not attacking the people, right? They're not attacking the people within, you know, not attacking the people within the nonprofits or academic and industrial complex, but the institution. But being also clear how they often collide, right? Man. This is a book that's going to have us fired up all season long, man. I thank you for listening. I appreciate you. This is your host, Elgin Bailey of the Page Turners Podcast. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, the goal is to study and fight. As always, I want to give a great shout out to Keystone Digital TV for their wonderful job of distributing all of the Page Turner's content. As always, ladies and gentlemen, I appreciate you. Take care of yourself. Till next time.